Welcome to Fail Harder. This is Volume 1, Episode 1 of what will certainly be a runaway podcasting and then pan-media success that will launch sequels, prequels, and careers. Unless, of course, it's a giant steaming failure. And that will be okay, because that's what we're talking about here. I'm Teresa Etsy. Along with others, I'll be hosting as we talk about things and two people that have, at some point, failed. So if you don't try nothing, then you never will fail. But you surely won't get anything done. So you may not just do your thing and learn from your mistakes. Experience teaches wisdom, and you see if you don't kill me. I know it's gonna be way. Oh yes, gonna make me stronger. First things first, that amazing sound you just heard is the voice of Agent Sasko singing about failing and coming up stronger. The song is called Stronger, and it's from his 2016 album, Theory of Regativity. We could not have a better audio embodiment of what we're doing here. I'm excited to say we're going to be talking to Sasko in an upcoming episode about his own stories of learning from his mistakes, and we'll be talking about his brand new album called Hope River. It's out on iTunes and all digital platforms, and it's so, so good. Okay, so here's what we're going to be doing on this show. The aim here isn't merely pointing and laughing at real or metaphorical face planting, though I won't say that'll never happen, looking at you, Juicero. It's more to talk about failures that yield some insight or are just really interesting. We're going to focus on what we'll call the Edison failure, the failure that inspires thought and action and questions and ideas. We'll talk to people from across creative and business fields, most of them, like our guest today, Chef Missy Robbins of Lilia, successful people who don't appear to ever have failed, we'll talk to them about what they learned when they did. And we'll try to get past our survivorship bias. That is, our tendency to focus on the stories of winners and draw too easy conclusions from them. Because failed ideas, really failed ideas, and companies and people tell no tales. Here would be a good time to do a quick sidebar in the story of Abraham Bald. You history buffs and strategy types may know this one. Wald was a genius working at the statistical research group during World War II. The Air Force tasked Wald with figuring out how they could improve the survival rates of their bombers by reinforcing certain parts of the planes. But they had to apply reinforcements sparingly so they didn't add too much weight to the aircraft. Up to that point, the military looked at where the planes that returned from battle had taken the most hits, which was along the wings, body, and the tail. The conclusion, of course, put more armor there. Vald was the first person to say, hang on, those damaged areas showed where a plane could be shot and lived to tell the tale. Look where they're not hit, said Vald. That's where the planes that didn't make it back were hit. So we'll try and keep that Valdian spirit in mind here. And as always, skepticism is encouraged. These stories are not meant to be a roadmap, but maybe an entertaining push for you to think of things in a new way. And now, our first Fail Harder interview. If I was standing in the kitchen cooking all day, Lilia wouldn't be Lilia, and I and and I wouldn't be happy. Right. So, I think that takes a lot, though, to be able to admit that and say, you know what, it's okay if I don't cook all day every day anymore. I think we can all agree that pasta is the best food, full stop. And when it comes to creators of pasta experiences, Missy Robbins is a golden goddess. Two and a half years after it opened, her first restaurant, Lilia, is still deservedly packed. The New York Times critic Pete Wells opened his review of Lilia by just saying, 
Missy Robbins is cooking pasta again. That is all you need to know. Which speaks to Missy Robbins' reputation as a chef before opening Lilia. She went from a top culinary school to jobs at ever more impressive restaurants before opening Lilia with partner Sean Feeney in January 2016. She published her first book, Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, Life, last year. This year, she won the James Beard Award for Best Chef in New York. And now she's opened her second restaurant in Williamsburg called Missy. More about that later. So again, not someone you associate with failure of any kind. But Lilia is in some ways the fruit of a failure. She failed to achieve a life goal she set for herself, which was to open a restaurant by the time she was 30. That milestone came and went, and what happened next is a great story of building what everyone else thinks is success, and only after walking away from it all, finding real success and happiness. And what's maybe most interesting about Lilia is that it's proof of a worldview of how to run a happier restaurant and a happier life. We sat down at Lilia before the rush. Missy talked about her story. She also talked about the failures that paved the way for those dishes that have lit up food Instagram and caused lines at the door of Lilia. Also, listen closely for me failing to say Malfaldini properly. Shit, I just did it again. (laughs) I pronounced the word wrong. I want to talk about this kind of critical decision you made that, you know, we can't look at it as a failure, but a giant risk you took. Yeah. And that you were at Avace and successful by any measure. And then what happened? Something was missing. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't happy. And I saw myself sort of becoming this person that I wasn't tremendously fond of. I, I was under a, a tremendous amount of pressure and, um, I just wasn't necessarily the person or the chef I wanted to be, and I couldn't pinpoint what that meant. I saw my future in a way, and I just didn't see Avoche as the long-term solution for me. And I was very proud of what I did there, and I was there for five years, and I built an amazing team, and we had a great following, and we got great accolades and all of that, but it somehow wasn't enough in a way for me. It wasn't making me, I wasn't particularly happy. I was pretty unhealthy um, and didn't really realize it. I look back on pictures of myself from that time and I'm like, what the hell was going on? And and uh, I knew, somehow I knew that if I just left Avoce and got a job or left in Avoce and went and started asking investors right away that it wasn't the right thing. And I. I didn't know I was burnt out until I kind of left. I just needed time to figure it out, and I didn't even know if I wanted to be a chef anymore, um, which I don't talk about that much, but I I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do. So what was, during that time, you know, you, you said that maybe you were gonna do something completely different, but did you then realize, okay, I, I know that I wanna, be in a restaurant. What was what I didn't was the kind really of know. It wasn't that it wasn't a revelation and it wasn't that definitive. It was more a little bit out of necessity and a little bit out of sort of like, okay, this is I've always wanted to open a restaurant. I've never done it. I've worked for all these other people. I have had a great career and I have had success. If you look at it from the outside, people would say that I'm very I was very successful at that time. Um, but I hadn't necessarily achieved that one goal of opening a restaurant. I always wanted to open a restaurant by the time I was 30. And I was, at the time I left Avoce, uh, 30, no, I was 42. Yeah, I was 42 when I left Avoce. And 
I think what happened was after all this time off, I, I just sort of, I didn't miss, I didn't miss it. I can tell you that. Like I wasn't craving being in the kitchen every night. I wasn't craving the lifestyle again. I was actually really loving being unemployed and I was really good at it. And, <laughs> and I was having, I was, if you can be good at being unemployed, I was good at it. I was having fun and I was kind of reinventing my life and had time for people and um, was cooking at home and traveling and just, I had this freedom that I never felt like I had before. So I think the opening the restaurant was sort of completing this goal that I started for myself when I was in my 20s and 20 years later I felt like I hadn't completed the goal and this was my kind of like if I don't do it now I'm never going to do it moment. And to me the worst that could happen is that I would open a restaurant, I would hate it and I would leave or I would go get a job and the best that could happen is what's happened. So um, I, I think you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but within opening the restaurant, the only way for me to do it was with the right partner, um, and that became a huge focus of mine. And within that, the only way for me to do it was to set parameters for myself of what was going to be okay for me and what wasn't going to be okay for me in terms of working. And I've lived pretty, pretty much to those standards that I've set to myself. To me, owning a restaurant was about being a restaurateur and being an entrepreneur and being a leader and still being the chef and still being the creative driving force but behind everything that happens here but not necessarily being the person who's in the kitchen making mozzarella all day and that takes some separation when you're a chef it takes some I think we all sort of have this ego driven thing that we have to be in the kitchen and that we're not we're not doing our job if we're not there all day. And what I've learned is I'm doing my job better if I can walk away and do the 20 other things I need to do to make this business run. If I was standing in the kitchen cooking all day, Lilia wouldn't be Lilia and I, and, and I wouldn't be happy. Right. So I think that takes a lot though to be able to admit that and say, you know what, it's okay if I don't cook all day every day anymore. Right, and I think that's, that's really interesting because the, you know, you, if you want to call it the failure of you wanted to open a restaurant by 30 and then 35, et cetera, and opened it later, this Lilia clearly wouldn't be what it is had you not gone through all those steps. Um, and I think that's you have arrived in this place where it's the whole experience that you want to, to curate and orchestrate. And part of that is creating a place that's better, a happier place to work for you and your staff. And I think that's a big breakthrough in an industry where it feels like if you, you know, there's this macho badge of honor, if you're not literally killing yourself. Yeah, and dedicated. I thought I had to kill myself for all those years. That was sort of the norm. The norm was like, can you show up earlier, an hour earlier, just do your station and the guy next to you, and that makes you better. But at the end of the day, what I try and still in my team is it doesn't make you better to work more hours. It makes you better to be more efficient and manage your time. I was sitting at the bar eating last week, and not to sound creepy, but I was... <laughs> I saw you in the kitchen. It's hard not to. It's a yeah, very yeah. open kitchen. Um, and you appeared to be maybe trimming peas or something. Oh, was And I? kind of, you know, calmly uh -huh. managing orders. It was a very zen scene for how crazily busy the restaurant is. Is that a typical night? What, what do nights here at Lilia look like for you? The kitchen stays pretty calm. At this time of year, we're in 
the heat of summer and July and we increased our seating because we have an outdoor patio and we're very busy and uh, it's very intense for the kitchen. But we've created an environment here that we want people to succeed. And so we're here to help the cooks. Like we, we never, we put pressure on them to succeed and, and to do well and to do their jobs. But during service, especially, the whole idea is to make sure that the guest is getting the food and that it tastes great and that they're getting it in a timely fashion and whatever we can do. But this is not a kitchen where there's like screaming and yelling and it's just kind of mellow. and. That's sort of a reflection on where I am in my life and a reflection on the space and being so close to the guest. And people commented on it all the time that the kitchen's so mellow and how do you do that? And I think it's just about having a presence. And if the leader of the kitchen has a presence that's not like that, it trickles down to everyone else. And I can tell you, I wasn't always this way. Um, but uh, And I'm not always cleaning peas. I don't know what I was doing that night. But I do like doing those Zen activities, actually. Like, I love cleaning fa I was probably cleaning fava beans. Um, I love doing fava beans and picking herbs and sort of I get in a zone where I, where I can just kind of be in a place, but also be managing the kitchen at the same time. So now it's been two and a half years since Lilia has been opened, yeah. and it's you know there are restaurants that are hot when they open and they keep a following, but the level of popularity at this stage, what you know. It feels like a special place, but also a neighborhood kind of restaurant. Yeah, I think we've been able to bridge that neighborhood. You know, when I opened here, like I said, I knew nothing about Williamsburg. I had spent a lot of time here, obviously, between the time we looked at the space and the time we opened, and I got the lay of the land, and I met people here, and I sort of walked around a lot and understood who was living here and all that. But we really opened sort of not knowing what would happen. And we opened sort of hoping the neighborhood would really appreciate what we were doing. And But I really had no idea. And I certainly had no idea that the sort of press would respond the way they've responded and the public would respond. And I, I knock on wood every day because it still sort of surprises me every day of how busy we still are two and a half years later. And it's humbling and it's really, I'm really grateful for it. And I'm grateful that people sort of love what, what we created here. And it is, this this is something that I create of every little piece of. This, this painting above your head comes from my parents' house. Um, they had it for many, many years and I always, wanted it and I never had a wall big enough for it and they weren't ready to give it up and the, the night one of the restaurant my mom walked in and she said she said you know you need art on that back wall we're going to send the garbus tomorrow and they had someone bring it down so like this is a really personal place to me right. and um and that's just a symbol of that and when I walk in here I kind of see my parents dining room in here which is kind of cool and the music the music, um, people love the music. I can take almost zero responsibility for it other than um, other than I like what my team is doing. Um, we have a lot of bartenders here who have contributed to the playlists and uh, they do an awesome job. And again, that goes sort of with the whole environment. It's not just about the food. And I was hoping that 20, 
years, 25 years in, I knew how to cook and that people would appreciate the food. Um, but what I didn't know is can I create an entire environment where people will really like and night after night people come up to us and say, oh my God, the food was so good, but the space is amazing and your music's amazing and oh my God, that server is so great. Um, and that's all I ever wanted. I wanted people to love the service here and not service. Like it's not about did you put that glass in the exact inch that it's supposed to go. And we obviously have service standards here, but it's much more than that. It's really about generating warmth and hospitality. And hospitality is sort of an overused word these days, but it's really about generating warmth. And as I said to you earlier, making people feel like they're really in our home and they're dining in, in our home. And the food is, is also pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> So how did you, I want to talk about how you developed, you know, some of the dishes and they're all amazing, but you know, the maffaldini with pink peppercorns, the things that you're maybe really known for, were there, you know, were there failed experiments or did you, you know, did there you get are always, all of that? There are always <laughs> failed experiences in cooking. I mean, always. And I, I am someone who very rarely nails a dish on the first time, like, and it's frustrating because you always think you can, and then you're like, no, that's just not quite quite right. And that's part of the strive for perfectionism and making everything as great as it, as it can be. And I've always, since I've be, been a chef, have never been able to just walk on the line, cook the dish that I have in my head, and be satisfied with it. And part of that's just, again, about internal satisfaction. If I gave you the dish on the first try, you'd probably think it was great, but there's always something that I think can be better in it. Um, the Malfadini is an interesting example. The Malfadini was, came out of me cooking at home to test our custom-made pasta bowl um, to make sure to see what, how much pasta would fit in it and how it looked. And all I had in my house was spaghetti and butter and cheese. And I was like, oh, I'm just gonna make this. And I wasn't even planning on eating it. And I turned around and I had some crushed pink peppercorns from an event I had done. And I threw them in there. I don't, I don't know, I was like thinking a little bit about cacio e pepe, but I was also just thinking about like, oh, pink peppercorns are so good. I wonder if they'd be good in here. And I, and it looked visually really pretty. And I was, I tasted one bite of it. And I was like, oh wow, this should go on the menu. The Malfadini is now the number two seller. The Agnolotti with his sheep's milk ricotta and right. saffron and honey is actually became the number one. And that was the toughest dish to nail. And that was really hard for me. I had this vision of like this Agnolotti kind of floating in this very light saffron infused tomato sauce, but like a really light sauce. And I kept making it and making it and making it. And every time it tasted like sh a can of Chef Boyardee <laughs> ravioli. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I was so determined to cook differently than I cooked at Avoce that it took me like 10 times before I was like, wait a second, let's go back to kind of like your cooking roots and let's figure out another way to get the tomato in here without making tomato sauce. And I kind of went backwards and went back to sort of a more refined, elegant way of cooking to get to that dish to where it is today. And I'm not mad about that, but it was definitely like, it was definitely a process and it is definitely l most like my old cooking. It is the most like my old cooking dish on this menu. Um, 
that exists. So yeah, it's always a it's always a process. But for me, the real menu development kind of came from things I was eating at home and things that I wanted to eat, and sort of having a respect for a more health healthy way of eating. Even though I was going to cook pasta, like how do I get half of the fat out of there and do I need to use as much butter as I used to use, and all that thing, and that became, I was very conscious of that right. while, we were, while we were developing recipes. What do you want to do with a new restaurant? New restaurant is sort of, you know, it's just another extension of, of what I've done here, and it's a little more simplified and just honing in on two things that I really love, pasta and vegetables. And um, if you kind of think about the menu here, we've got fish and cocktail snacks and all this stuff. And we wanted to, to take things that people have really loved about Lilia. This is sort of an idea that I've wanted to do for many years before Lilia was even born. And, and I think Lilia sort of proved that, it, that I could be successful in doing it by the sheer number of pasta we sell here at night, <laughs> amount of pasta we sell here at night. Um, but uh, it's really, the service style will be the same. It's not meant to be higher end or lower end. It, it may end up having a different vibe just by the very nature of its design and by the fact that the menu is just much shorter. But we want to offer kind of the same warmth and hospitality and graciousness and make people feel, again, like they're in our home. and having a good time. I think it's going to be a really fun restaurant. Um, it's a lot of bar seating. There are 35 seats around the kitchen, an open kitchen, and they're in the kitchen. I mean, they are like, for as much as we have to behave now, we're going to have to behave even more. Um, it's, I mean, the, the guest will be as close as you are to me, to a cook. Um, so that's going to be really fun and, and uh, interactive, I think. And yeah. I can't wait. Me neither. That's this edition of Fail Harder. This podcast is a production of Widening Kennedy. Visit us at wk.com. And remember, many of life's failures are people who never realized how close they were to success when they gave up. So hear me now. Just do your thing and learn from your mistakes. Experience teaches wisdom and you see if we don't kill now. I know it's gonna be way, oh yes. Gonna make me stronger. Ah oh, yes, I you see if it don't kill me, I know it's gonna be way, gonna make me stronger.